Our Father, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. Um, and I pray this morning that as we look at Psalm 87, that the things from this psalm that you mean us to hear and to feel and to be moved by, that you would do such, that you would guide our hearts and our imaginations to be captivated, to be challenged, to be reassured and comforted by the words of this psalm, and that you would still hope in us in and through Jesus Christ. Would you help us to do this today? Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> my question to, to start this morning is, do you think about your citizenship? Maybe some of you do. Um, I don't think about it that often. I thought about it because I asked this question and I was writing this sermon, so I thought about it a little bit, and obviously yesterday I stopped and thought about it a little bit. But it would be pretty easy to stop and think the various ways that we've been privileged, many of us, to be born where we're born. So first, we've all been born now at this time. None of us were born 800 years ago. That's pretty significant. Uh, most of us uh, have been born in the U.S., maybe not all of us. Uh, within the U.S., uh, many of us have been born in those places, those towns, zip codes, areas of the country where education and support and opportunity have been readily available to us, that, that we've been in places where we could really do well and succeed. Where you're born, where you have your citizenship it matters. And a Christian is someone who has been born again, who belongs to God, who is, a city of, who is a citizen of Zion, the city of God's people. And Psalm 87 is in the Bible to remind us what it means to be a citizen of this beloved city. Specifically, Psalm 87, I think, desires to move us to see that to be a citizen of Zion is to be a citizen of a city that is glorious and it is inclusive and it is a city of grace and therefore it is a city that is filled with joy. So let's think about each of those. It's a glorious city, it's an inclusive city, it's a city of grace and therefore it is a joy-filled city. It's a glorious city. Uh, cities were important in the ancient world for a number of reasons, but one, because it was a place of safety, safety and protection. So outside the city, you could face various dangers of all sorts, but within the city and within her gates, there was security. It was a place where life could flourish. And the city that's being talked about here in this psalm, historically speaking, is the city of Jerusalem. This is the city that David made the capital of Israel during his reign and where Solomon, his son, built the temple. But in the Psalms and in the prophets and into the New Testament, Zion is not just a historical place or a geographical location in the Middle East, but Zion is a way of referring to God's promised kingdom. It's a place, it's a people fully restored and redeemed with God dwelling in their midst. It's a city that we read in, Ver in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, a city that is going to fill up the whole earth. The Bible tells us that history ends not with 
heaven, a sort of, you know, disembodied spirit, you know, floating on clouds, eternal worship service. But it ends, history ends with heaven coming down to earth. A glorious city where its citizens live restored, redeemed, with resurrected bodies, with one another, and with God forever. When I was thinking about a glorious city, it made me think a few years ago when Aaron and I, for our 10th anniversary, we went to Paris. Now, I had never been out of the country really before. I had to get uh, a passport for the first time. I think I was like 31 or something like that. Um, so stepping into France and getting off the, p- the plane and then stepping into the city of Paris, it was like a whole nother world. Uh, I remember walking the streets of the city and seeing the glorious buildings, the beautiful architecture. I remember going into Notre Dame Cathedral and sitting there and there was a choir performing and just sitting and listening to them sing. I remember Aaron and I uh, being outside on a very sunny day, but not a really hot day like today. I think it was like 75, 78. It was perfect. And I had a coffee in one hand and a fresh chocolate croissant in the other hand. It was glorious. But the glory of Zion is far greater because, shocker, the glory of Zion is not croissants. It's not even beautiful art. It is, I think if we were to boil it down quite simply, it is God's presence. Zion is a city founded by God, we read in verse 1. It is on the holy mountains, They are holy, these mountains, because God dwells there. Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. This is the place, this is right, the particular place where the love and the presence of God is focused. And while it's true that God is present everywhere throughout the Bible, the scriptures tell us that God is uniquely present in certain places. So, you know, your cell phone, if you have a decent network, generally speaking, wherever you go, you will have one or two bars. But then there are these places, right, where you have five bars and you have super fast internet and and it's like a hot spot. And Zion is one of the hot spots of God's presence where he is intensely present. And we could really sum up the whole biblical story as a story about God's presence. That in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, we were made to know God and to live with him and to dwell with him. We were placed in the garden at rest and peace with God and one another. But Genesis 3, humanity sinned. We turned from God and so we were removed from the home of his presence. Yet the whole Bible is about how it is God's deep desire that he would dwell with us, that he would bring us back to himself. And so you see this throughout the story of the Bible. You see it in the tabernacle as God dwells with and travels with his people Israel. You see it in the temple where he dwells in the temple. And even when Israel sins again and again and again and again and again, forfeiting the home of God's presence, the prophets all speak of the day when God would fully and finally be with us and the home of his presence would come. Zion is glorious because it's where the Lord is. That's why it's holy. That's why it's beautiful. And that's why it is so secure. 
Three times in this very short psalm, verse 1, we read that God has founded this city. Verse 2 speaks of him loving her gates. And verse 5, that God has established her. These images bring to mind this sense of this is a secure, protected place. When I think about modern life, this is true for me. I'm assuming it's true for you. I, we, I think, live with a sort of frantic anxiety. Do you know what I'm talking about? Belonging to this city means that the life of frantic anxiety of, am I doing enough? Am I keeping up? Am I, do I look good enough? Am I impressing enough? Am I profiting enough? Am I satisfying enough? That it can end. Because to belong to this city is to be someone who is deeply loved by God. You are his. And this is a rest that never gets boring and that you never have to leave because you're home. It's a glorious city. In verse 3, we read, Glorious things are said about you, city of God. And this is rightly so because of what follows in verses 4 through 6. We, we read really that this is an inclusive city. The meat of this psalm, I think, comes in the middle here in verses 4 through 6, which in a really shocking way tell who is going to belong to this city. Now, what God says in these verses, let me just say, is I think is extremely attractive uh, to our culture because we live in a culture that very much wants to be inclusive. We want diversity. We value it. And here's a picture that God paints, give or take, 2,500 years ago of his people, of the citizens of Zion, being this multi-ethnic, multicultural people. And that this was always God's desire. But for the original readers, I think this would have been a little bit unsettling. In other words, they don't read this and have a, oh, that's nice. This would have been unsettling, quite possibly offensive, and probably at least seemingly unrealistic. The nations that are listed here, they might not mean a lot to us, but I want you to think about these. Let's start at the bottom, Cush, most likely referring to Ethiopia. This is probably the least outright offensive, but Ethiopia was remote, distant. What claim does this far-off people have to the city of Zion? Then there is Rahab, which is a reference to Egypt. They were the first oppressor and enslaver of Israel. If you were an Israelite, this was the nation that made life miserable for you. This was the nation that killed your sons to prevent any possibility that you might ever revolt against them. Babylon, the second major oppressor and enslaver, this was the enemy nation that surrounded your city as people literally starved to death and then killed people in your city, sometimes your sons and daughters, before your very eyes. And then they burned the temple of the Lord. Philistia, this was the constant thorn in your side during your early years in the land, during the period of the judges and into the early monarch, the constant battles and wars. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. Tyre, 
proud and wealthy neighbors to the north. Both Philistia and Tyre are mentioned in Psalm 83, just a few Psalms before this one, as nations who together make an agreement with a whole host of other nations. And the agreement is basically, we're going to come together and we're going to wipe out Israel. And God says, verse 4, I'm going to make a record of those who know me. And then list these nations. People from these nations are going to know him. And that word in the Bible is just packed with significance, right? Because Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. And God says in uh, Jeremiah 31, he says that when the new covenant comes, this renewed and restored relationship that God is going to have with his people, in that day, the Israelites will not say to one another, know the Lord, for they're all going to know me, God says. In other words, within the people of God in the new covenant, there's not going to be this, um, you know, those who are formally connected, you know, they've been circumcised, they belong to a tribe, but they don't really know Yahweh, not really. They're all going to know him. They're going to have his law written on their hearts. And by listing these nations, the far off, and especially the oppressors and the enemies, God is saying, my people, those who are going to be citizens of Zion, who belong to me and know me deeply and intimately, they're going to be from every tribe and nation and tongue and people, even the enemies and the oppressors. In verses 4 through 6, this is even stated with kind of like an increasing specificity, almost as if, you know, someone was asking questions. So, verse 4, these nations will be born there. Okay, wait. Born where? Verse 5, they're going to be born in Zion. And who authorized this? Verse 6, the Lord himself. As one author put it, To the consternation of the Israelite immigration officials, the sovereign Lord himself is going to cook the documents and record that these aliens, let alone non-passport holders, were born there. This is an inclusive city. And because it's an inclusive city, it's a city of grace. If you were a really thoughtful Israelite, if you just sat and thought about your own history and the scriptures, you would be constantly, constantly reminded that your status as belonging to God depends entirely not on you or anything in you or anything you will ever do, but depends upon God's grace. What I mean is if you belong to God and he gives you the privilege of his promises and his presence and his loving kindness, he does this when you deserved none of it. The Passover event, Extremely important for the Israelites, right? Think about the Passover. When the angel of death goes through the land of Egypt, bringing judgment on the firstborn, Israel was not spared because Israel was better or there was something about Israel that that just passed over. If you were an Israelite and you were spared, the reason was there was blood on your doorposts. What this psalm would have pressed upon Israel was, in essence, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are enemies who have been made family of God, and there are enemies who are still hostile to God. But by nature, there are no natural children of Zion. And I think this would have been the hard truth that Israel would have had to sit with 
right? Think about it. As they prayed and read this psalm, we're not better. We're not more deserving. If God can make us his people, he could make anyone a part of his people. And if you're here today and, and, you, and you call yourself a Christian, and again, I, I wouldn't assume that everybody necessarily would, but if you would call yourself a Christian, I want to ask, do you live with this kind of hope toward others? If you were to think about the person who seems to you the furthest away from Jesus, the most hostile to Jesus, or if you thought about the group of people, uh, some group you know, that, that you perceive to be the most hostile against Jesus, when you think about enemies, and maybe we don't like that word, but when you think about people or groups that threaten you or you perceive to threaten what you believe and cherish and hold dear, do you live with an active hope toward them? Or do we have hope for the neighbors who look like us and 90% share our, vu- our views and our commitments already? Do, do we reach out and invite only those who are you know, 90% like us and share these things in common with us and, and it seems like all they need is just a little push into the kingdom? That would make complete sense if the city was not a city of grace. It would make complete sense if we were the ones who were registering the peoples. If we were the ones, you know, bringing the people in. But God is the one who is doing it. It is of God's making. Is it harder for God to make an Egyptian or a Babylonian his than it was for him to make you his? Israel is being drawn into a vision of the city that they belong to, the city of Zion, that will be this inclusive city of grace, filled up with people far and wide, even of their own former oppressors and enemies. And it's a vision that calls the citizens of Zion to live toward enemies and outsiders with the hope that one day they would be sharers and partakers of this city and promise with us. Again, think of what it would have been like to pray and read this psalm. If you weren't offended, I think at the very least, this would have seemed unrealistically optimistic. And as I've thought about this text this week, what my mind has gone to is a quote, a rather lengthy quote from Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon titled, Love Your Enemies, where King calls for this kind of hopeful love that oppressors and enemies will one day be made family and fellow sharers. He says this, Am I saying that Jesus commands us to love those who hurt and oppress us? Do I sound like most preachers, idealistic and impractical? Maybe in some distant utopia you say that ideal will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for too long a time now, and it has led inexorably to deeper confusion and chaos. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrender to hatred and violence. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation, but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and obligation to love. While abhorring the segregation, While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, 
We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Send your hooded, per- your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour to beat us and leave us half dead, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win our freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. Now, this posture of nonviolence, of hope for the oppressor, of love and standing and suffering for the truth was really in many ways at the heart of of Martin Luther King Jr.'s part of the civil rights movement. Where did he get this from? Where did this idea come from? It came from Jesus. It came from the gospel. It came from Jesus who loved his enemies while they were oppressing him and killed him. And yet even more, we can see in Jesus and in the good news of his death and resurrection, how it was that God could ever pull off this incredible vision, this vision of a glorious city, of an inclusive city, and of this city of grace. Because God doesn't just overlook or forget the sins of his people, or the sins of the Babylonians, or the Egyptians, or the rest. Right? God, God doesn't just forget. And this is one way where this version of inclusion and, and what is being described here is, is really different from what many talk about in our world because what we see here is it is in Jesus in particular, in him, that enemies are made friends, that enemies are made family with God and with one another because Jesus was treated like an enemy. Jesus, God in person in our world, dies on a Roman cross. And you know that that death was specifically used for non-citizens, for the outsider, for those who did not belong to Rome, for those who didn't matter. And Jesus dies the death of an enemy, the death of an outsider. He dies under the wrath and curse of God. I mean, you all have been through Isaiah over the last year, and I'm sure you read through passages where these very nations are stacked up and all of their sins are condemned and judgment is coming. And you have to be wondering, how on earth are they going to get in the city? It's because Jesus is going to bear the cost. He's going to pay the penalty he is going to bear all the cost of the citizenship that they can just come. Paul, reflecting on Jesus' death, says in Ephesians 2 that the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, that hostility has been killed in Jesus. Through Jesus' deaths, that hostility and enmity has been killed. And of course, this is why this is a city that is filled with joy. It couldn't be anything but a city full of joy. Verse 7, you get this picture of this parade of, you know, joy-filled dancers and singers and musicians, and they're singing together, my whole source of joy is in you. 
Literally, it says, all my springs are in you. It's a, it's a picture of this fountain, this spring of life that is filling up those who are belong to this city and belong to God. And if you want to know this joy, here's the paradox. If you want to know this joy, you have to know your misery and your sin. You have to know your lostness apart from Jesus. In our confession of faith, we use those beautiful words from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, where it's repeated twice, this idea of belonging to God and the comfort and the hope that comes from that and the joy that comes from that. And if you look at the next question, if you were to look, question two of the Heidelberg Catechism essentially asks this question, what do I need to know to have this joy? And the answer is, you have to know your sin and your misery. You have to be hit with the reality of God's grace flooding into your life. You don't need to sin more, but you need to see those places where you are broken, where you are needy. You need to see the sin in your life and you need to see Jesus meeting you in that place and loving you in that place and forgiving you in that place and welcoming you to him. Let me ask the question, when you're hit with the reality that you sin against God and you sin against others or, or, or you're hit with the reality that you've hurt others, when you're hit with the reality and you realize, I am selfish, I am apathetic. I don't care. I am lustful. I am petty. I am greedy. What do you do with that? I think what is super normal is we try to not think about it because that's kind of sad and depressing. I don't want to think about that. We try to rid our minds of those things. But this is saying, paradoxically, I think, that when you're hit with the reality of that, if you would see Jesus coming to you and you would receive the good news of the gospel and receive him in that very space loving you and receiving you and forgiving you and welcoming you, that it would lead to this joy. This joy that would fill you and would be oriented outward as you just start to think, if God has loved me this way, what might, he, what might he do in others to have this sort of hopeful joy? John Newton um, wrote a hymn based off this psalm called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. It's a fairly well-known hymn. And the last verse, it reads this. Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Do you want to know the lasting treasure and joy of being a citizen of Zion? It's simple. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with the rebel, 
hostile heart that still exists in you if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, the enemy that you are, but come to him and see that he is welcoming you, receiving you, inviting you in at no cost because he's paid it all. Citizens of Zion, celebrate and rejoice. Amen. Uh, Let's take a moment to pause, to pray, to bring our hearts to God, to confess our sins, to receive his grace. We'll pause for a a few moments of silent prayer and then then I'll lead us. Let's, Let's pray.